Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5 DAB. Well, streaming via the podcast, this is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and look at their record collection and some of the stories that come with it. Today I'm broadcasting from the FBI radio studio in Redfern, which means I'm coming to you from unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Before we go any further, I want to acknowledge that Gadigal people have been telling stories on this land since the beginning of time. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My guest today is Jake Duchinski. He is a master storyteller, but his job telling stories is about reimagining the way they look and the way they feel. He's an animator, writer, director, and co-founder of Glace Studios. Today, along with Jake's story, we're going to look at stories that have been around since the beginning of time and the way he captures them through animation. We're also going to capture Jake's story through the songs that have defined his very big and very young life. Jake, it's such an honour. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Thank you for having me. Let's go back to the start of your life. It begins not too far from here, just in Marrickville. When you think about that time, what do you see? Well, I mean, I was in I was in Marrickville from you know obviously from birth through to maybe five years old, so I have very vague memories of Marrickville, mainly of the house of the backyard, um, and I've sort of learnt more about the place through stories and through photographs of my father's and sort of what Marrickville was at that time. And, you know, it was very different to how it is now, obviously, as many places are. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't long until we, you know, packed up and, and got out of there. I think mum and dad had sort of had enough, you know. I, I, I think dad sort of, you know, being an avid photographer, he'd sort of taken photos of a few dead bodies lying in the street. And, you know, there were a few sort of incidents that occurred, a couple of break-ins, um, and I think they just decided to get out of there and head south for the for the south coast to a little cold coast town called Thoreau. And so, yeah, we, we sort of kicked it off down there. I remember being in, might have been year one or kindergarten, one of the two. And, yeah, we sort of set up, set up camp down there and you know, it was our sort of our South Coast sanctuary. Um, and very, very soon it became the drop-in and the sanctuary for a lot of our family. Um, you know, it was Like almost, a holiday house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like a revolving door, you know. Yeah. Um, so that was really amazing, you know, despite being, you know, an hour and a, a little bit from Sydney, um, it was always full mm. and the house was always full of running, running cousins and aunties and uncles and, you know, my nan and pop were a bit of a mainstay down there. That's so nice. Mm. And, I, I mean, you had a lot of family in Sydney too, like you just said, but also in Moree. Mm. Did they get to visit you much as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was sort of a bit of a, you know, that's a bit of a migration path, you know, um, for my nan, for my mother, for us, you know, heading from Sydney to Moree, Moree to Sydney, Sydney to Thoreau, Thoreau to Sydney, up to Moree. Let's talk about Moree as well. That's mm. Gomorrah country, mm. where your family's from. Mm. I mean, I had the privilege of growing up where my family's from, which is on Barkindji country, and got to have that connection. Do you have any feelings about, you know, being a Gomorrah man growing up on Gadigal and then Daryl country? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think as a kid, it was something where, you know, like you're, when you're young and you're surrounded by your cousins and your uncles and aunties and, you know, it's a, we had a big family and we're always close and always together and, you know, always sleeping head to toe on, you know, in beds throughout the house and whatnot. And I think as a kid you never really feel that distance mm. because you're so immersed in family and in story and, you know, gambling little songs and, you know, dance and whatever and, and you know, language and, you know, sporadic sort of little little bits of language you know um and so 
that distance was never really, for me at least, never really felt until I got a little bit older and I wanted to know more and I wanted to know, I wanted to follow us all the way back and where, you know, just that, that sort of deep history and, you know, because um, sometimes it gets very muddied, you mm. know, with um, with displacement and, you know, like we, so we, on my great-grandmother's side, we originally come from Manandangi country, Roma Surat, you know, southwestern Queensland. And so she sort of migrated down to Maureen in New South Wales because the protection board was, you know, obviously feared and they wanted to get out of there. So her her older brother, Werribin Jack, he he told them that, you know, they were on the lookout, they were on the prowl. And so they got an old horse and cart and they came down to Moree and that's where they resettled, you know, down there on um, in the sort of the communities on the missions that they'd set up for them. And that's where she met, um, you know, my great-grandfather, Thomas Binge, and uh, he's from Booma, he's a Gomorrah man. So, yeah, you know, that, that sort of deeper research that you do as an adult and the return and the yearning to spend more time back, particularly, you know, as an artist, as a creator, and doing so many projects with communities all over Australia, you know, and internationally, working with so many First Nations artists, you know, I'm just sort of, in my mind, I'm kind of like, how do I start working on projects from back home, you know, and we recently did a project with Reiko, uh, Reiko Rennie, the fine artist, uh, he's a Gomorrah fellow too, my countryman, and, you know, we sort of had that same conversation, we just sort of said, how do we, how do we do this again on a, on a, on a larger scale, you know, and take this back home and take this back home for, for the community and, you know, for, for the young fellows that are coming up. So, you know, I think all of those motivators are certainly burning hot right now, mm. you know, um, as you get a little bit older and, you know, you, you, you make connections within the industry and you kind of see the possibilities, you know, in these projects that can start, you know. Totally. And it's, yeah, it's so interesting you say that because I, I feel the same way in you know when you're growing up that that interest is just inherent and it's all around you because your family are talking about it all the time but Mm. it becomes such a solitary adventure when you get older and it becomes almost intellectual as well you've got to kind of find that information in archives and actively Mm. dig for it and talk to people about it it's Mm. not just all-encompassing but Mm. I want to go back to that all-encompassing place because you said that your grandparents were mainstays at your house in Thoreau did they pass those stories on to you? Yeah, definitely. You know, it was um, it was an interesting, you know, uh, sharing of knowledge and a, an interesting way of, you know, in my later years deciphering, you know, the kind of the knowledge that they would share. You know, I think for my grandmother, you know, growing up on on the mission there in Moree, and you know, she talks about buses full of people coming through like it was a zoo and throwing lollies out the window at the little black kids and you know, these types of things. And I think it's sort of for her, you know, she she knew a lot of language and a lot of song and she'd sing us lullabies in language, you know, to sleep. But there was always a reluctancy to openly pass that on and to share that story, you know, because I think for, for a lot of it, you know, there's, it was taboo for so long, you know, to practice culture and, and to be proud of it, you know, in those spaces. You know, it was, you know, tidy your house and be clean and mm. be proper and, and you know, um, conform to the white man's ways, you know. Um, and as well for her, you know, her story is that, you know, she was um, growing up there on Moree and, and, you know, she was doing well in school. She was straight A student, you know, very conscientious. And, you know, she, I think she was 12 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. And she was kind of pulled aside with a, you know, a group of her friends and the principal just said, look, you know, Francis, there's no future for blacks in Moree. You know, there's no future for you in education. I'd advise you to leave school and go and get a job, you know. And so, you know, with that she did and she was kind of made to go and work out on a, on a cocky's farm, you know. Obviously in Moree at that time there's, there's the abattoirs and there's cotton you know, and there ain't much in between. And there wasn't a lot of black fellas that owned those businesses. So, you know, she went and worked out on a, on a station. And, you know, she was the maid for this family, this rich family, you know, that um, grew cotton. 
and you know she I think she would live there for four years you know raising these young kids maybe even five years raising these kids from babies all the way through and um, you know I think just for her that part of it and you know that sort of that history of it you know she was always just like look don't worry about that that's in the past you know that was kind of her mentality that's in the past now mm. um, and then to the you know the flip side of that was my pop who was you know making boomerangs and making spears and you know bringing us together and showing us dances and songs and who's always you know painting there in, in the lounge room or whatever you know smoking a cigarette and um, you know, so it was sort of a, this this stark, very stark difference um, between the two, uh, which was always kind of an interesting dynamic for us, you know, as kids. Yeah, I, I want to explore that later in the show as well and the lives that your grandparents had and, mm. you know, what that would lead them to eventually do. Mm. But, yeah, your grandfather made art around you, your dad was a photographer around you. Mm. Did you always know that you would be an artist as well? I don't no, definitely not, you know. Like I was I, I sort of just fell into it because you know, I was always drawing and sketching and like I was obsessed with it as a kid, you know, like I'd always be drawing on things and creating things and silly sculptures in the background or going down to the creek and getting clay and modelling little you know, little pots and all, all sorts of things or going up into the bush or and paint myself up and you know making spear you know I was just sort of always just making things with my hands or you know drawing or whatever um, and it sort of wasn't until I went to high school and you know started really sort of getting the pens out and doing a little bit of graffiti you know and starting to do paste ups and things like that and I was really lucky, you know, the kind of the crew that I was hanging with, um, you know, we weren't the sort of the outcasts, but we certainly weren't the, you know, the surfers, the footy players, the kids with minors as dads who have some kind of authority within the social dynamic at school, you know, and we used to sort of have our own little clique, you know, and we used to go out and draw and go painting and all this kind of thing, go diving in the ocean and, you know, spearing and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, it was, it was definitely something that I, I kind of really was there, but I just kind of really grew into it through the crew that I was hanging with. And then of course, you know, as you do, you, you progress into buying a tattoo machine. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's a pipeline. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a segue. And yeah, I started, you know, doing little, little tattoos on mates and all that kind of thing. And so in my mind, I'm kind of like, oh, well, look out, you know, you can, you can make money from this, you know, from illustrating on people. It's funny because you've had such an illustrious career as an artist, but you almost sound a bit <laughs> ambitionless in this point in your life. Yeah, it was kind of a, yeah, very directionless. It didn't feel like there was any trajectory that would take me anywhere by doing what I was doing, you know what I mean? Um, and later in the show, I want to... Talk about when you eventually would study and, mm. you know, think about art in a different way. Mm. But first, you've chosen a song by Coloured Stone to play on the show, Jake. Mm. Tell mm. me about this one. Yeah, this was definitely a song that I felt was very well suited for this time in my life, you know. Um, being a, a young adolescent coming of age, you know, and, and being surrounded by so much family and being pride, you know, being proud to be a, an Aboriginal man, you know. And then moving to this place, you know, down on the south coast and it wasn't the most receptive environment for loud, proud blackfellas, you know what I mean? And I remember just screaming to this song, you know, just screaming the lyrics, you know, it'd be raining, I'd be crying, I'd be <laughs> punching the pillows and, you know, if something went down at school or, you know, just just some kind of weird undertone of you know a racist kind of remark or whatever this was definitely the one I'd blast mm. yeah, yeah it's like a reinstallation of pride yeah yeah big time and, and you know just sort of like a yeah like you say like a, a reaffirmation of being proud you know um, that was a huge part of this song for me a shy black boy you came to the city to learn about life and now his people lost their lives
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on our website, fbiradio.com, that song was called Black Boy. It was by Coloured Stone, and it was chosen by my guest on the show today, Jake Dichinski, who is an animator, director, and writer. Jake, let's talk about the name Dichinski. Where does that come from? Yeah, so I got that mouthful from my father, um, and... It's a Polish name. Uh, so my grandparents were Polish. They're from Krakow and Łódź over in Poland. And um, when they were invaded by the Russians, they they fled to, you know, they were, it's, a, it's a very long story and, you know, it's a very historical and important one. Um, you know, they were sort of taken off into different work camps and into respective areas down in Siberia and lived in a hole in the ground with a tarp on the roof for seven years under the snow in Siberia. Um, You know, they loaded them up on cattle trains and took them down there. And, you know, eventually when, you know, with the Polish uprising and when it all sort of fell over, they got out, you know. I think they'd kind of had enough. They wanted to get out of there. And so they kind of fled to to England. They had a a young family, then they weren't there for long. Um, You know, they had my father there in Ballon. Um, and then they come over here on as a ten, you know, as ten pound palms. And I think the reason being they came over here was for the new snowy hydro. And they moved out here, and my grandfather and grandmother lived down on a little place called Island Ben, down on the Snowies. And they lived there in the bush, in the scrub, in little tin tin shacks. And that's where your dad grew up as well. Yeah, that's where my wow. dad grew up. Yeah, and his sister and his brother. So yeah, my old my old grandfather he was a um, he was an engineer on the Snowy on the hydro scheme. Um, so he'd you know migrate from there in an old uh, convertible school bus. So you know they sawed the roof off a bus and all the workers would get in there, all the school tr- children would get in there and they'd take them up you know up the mountain. It's a it's a long drive out you know up the mountain and then over to the to the new hydro scheme. And um, yeah, they they stayed down there for a while you know. Um, until it was finished and then they think they might have had enough money and moved into town, into Cooma. What an amazing story. Jake, all of your grandparents have had such incredible and big stories. Earlier we were talking about some of those challenges that your grandma faced growing up and she would eventually go on to run boys' homes. Do you think that there's a correlation between those two things? Yeah, I think so, you know, like... She's very much the the matriarch, you know, of our family, and the 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 binding glue and substance, you know. Well, I, I speak of her as if she's still here, but you know, she's passed now. Um, but she was definitely that figure, and you know, when when they came down, you know, they started to try and find work, and you know, like they were they were poor, you know, like they were living off hand, you know, off handouts, and you know, salvos kept them alive, and. You know, they were they came down here and they didn't have a lot. But yeah, so at that time I think they were they were pretty dirt you know, dirt poor and so one of her sisters at the time was working with the Aboriginal youth hostels. Um and so what they were was a you know, it would be a hostel. Um they ended up, you know, going and doing these training courses, you know, up in Brisbane I think it was. They paid for them to fly up there and do these courses and so they kind of skilled up and whatever, and then they came back down, and then they, you know, ran this youth hostel out in Granville, and you know that would be for for young men, you know, young Aboriginal men who were coming through, and um, I believe who were studying, you know, trades or you know on different career pathways, and so you know I think Mum and all of her brothers and sisters speak very fondly of that time, you know, growing up in a home, and they said, look, we went from having absolutely nothing and you know very very rarely a, a roof over their head to having this house that had 15 bedrooms and mm. a games room and you know um they said they had a tennis court oh wow and so it was you know just this really beautiful moment of stability mm. and safety and you know um there was obviously money flowing into the household and so yeah you know they i think they did that for quite a few years and where we left your dad, he was in Kuma. Mm. How did he come to cross paths with your mum? That is a, a good question. I think I'm a bit shady on some of the detail. 
but from what I remember, he was working at DSP in Erskineville, so Disadvantaged Schooling Program, I believe it's called, and he wanted to do a, a kit, a educational kit, where you know he's working, on, he's working a lot, you know, with um, you know lower socioeconomic areas and kids and schools, and he's working a lot with young blackfellas, and the content that they're seeing as he tells it, you know, he's not. He's not seeing any representation of blackfellas in key roles in movie productions or in, you know, just in any any role within society, a professional role that these kids could see and aspire to and model them, themselves around, you know. Um, so he decided that he'd put together a, a kit where he was going to go out and video and photograph and, and write stories about all these amazing First Nations men and women who are out there in the workforce doing incredible things. So he calls the education department, um, and at the time my nan was working there as a, um, I believe, a you know a consultant or an advisor or something like that, so for the First Nations faction. And um, so he calls her up, you know, not knowing her, not speaking a word to her before. And, you know, each of each of their lives, and um, he said, "Oh, look!" He explains it to her, and she says, "Oh, well, look, my daughter's a flight attendant. You know, she works for TAA. You should go down and photograph her." So, you know, he goes down there, and they um, they meet for the first time. Yeah, and takes a whole lot of photos of her. Apparently, they booked out a whole, you know, one of the I don't know if it was seven three seven or one of the planes. It was an entire plane, just you know, the two of them. Um, so he said, "Look, I can't pay you. You know, I can't. We don't have any funding. I can't pay you, but um, I can take you out to dinner." So, so there you go. That's how they met. <laughs> wow! And yeah, um, we have those photos as well. I'll put them on the programs page on fbiradio.com. They're so beautiful. We're going to jump into a song by Archie Roach. Jake, tell me about this one. Yeah. So I mean, this song is one of the most powerful songs for me you know um yeah watching this film the tracker you know Rolf to hears the tracker and hearing this and this particular scene when this song comes on I think it was one of the more powerful moments that sort of just pushed me even deeper into the world of wanting to make films and wanting to make people feel the way that I was feeling in that moment you know um so yeah this is Uncle Archie Roach and far away home. I walked my land proud and free Far away from my other life Searching I roam Far away It was the late Archie Roach on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Far Away From Home and the chooser was my guest on Out of the Box today, animator, director, writer and co-founder of Galay Studios, Jake Duchinsky. Jake, earlier in the show we talked about your life in Thrall and your early art making. The word directionless was thrown around a little bit, but you very much have direction now, a lot of it actually, and... I want to talk about when that changed. Where were you in life when you started to feel a bit more ambitious when it came to art making and animating? Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was kind of probably on the back of year 12 or something like that. You know, I'd kind of got through it. And, yeah, like you say, a bit, bit directionless, kind of drifting. Wasn't sort of really motivated at the point in anything but, you know, a potential career, you know, in tattoo. And, you know, I was just still drawing all the time. I think I was still kicking a soccer ball around and getting paid a measly amount of cash for it. And, you know, not a lot on the horizon. So, you know, I think my one of my uncles kind of clocked that. I don't know if he was, you know, spurred on by my mother or my father, but he sort of said, hey, look, you know, I'm over here at Channel 10 and, you know, just come on in. You know, like, just come on in and see what we do here. And, um, you know, so he sort of brings me in and, you know, I get to meet the 
the designers and some of their animators and motion artists and things like that. And I see them drawing on these big Cintiq digital tablets, you know, and they're doing similar things to what I'm doing, you know. I'm drawing and they're drawing, but it's in this digital form and they're making it move. And at the time I was doing like little stop-mo animations, you know, like I was doing wheat pastes stop-mo on a wall and I was doing you know little bits of graph on a wall and buffing it out and doing it another frame and you know just experimenting with all different things because there was cameras lying around all the time at our place my old man has you know a million cameras and so I was just experimenting with it and I could see it like I, I had an understanding of you know frame rates and all this type of thing so I walks into you know channel 10 and and I see this and I'm kind of like what are you doing and how do I do it you know what I mean like you're getting paid for this like you're getting paid to draw every day so you know I sort of chat a little bit more to them and and um, I showed them my work and you know some of them were kind of like you know I mean it was it was pretty shit animation but they were mm-hmm. kind of like oh we we see that you can draw and you're starting to develop you know your understanding around the principles of animation we've got this new network launching called channel 11 and at the time I'm not too sure if it's still in existence um, and so they commissioned me to do these stop-mo animations one was on a chalkboard I think one was with wheat pastes some of them were just like illustrations and it sort of just blew me away you know that I could do this and, and earn money from this and express myself in in that way and be paid for it you know that was a that was a huge part of it for me I think it's also so interesting that you're there doing that without having any kind of formal training in animation it's almost like those wheels were turning in your head and you'd figured out a lot of it on your own Mm. yeah yeah definitely um you know we I sort of went off and did this commission and straight after that you know they they were really happy with what I did and you know the amount of work that I'd produced was probably way over what they briefed from that moment I you know jumped on the computer and was searching every and any animation course available near me you know what was in the in the country what was in Sydney what was what was the nearest place you know um, and so from there I, I found a course I found um, that UTS was opening up a brand new animation course um, you know the first year of its existence um, and they you know in their kind of brief and in their bio they talked about independent animation they talked about experimental animation you know being um, you know technique agnostic and all this type of thing and so for me that was just kind of like oh amazing like that that's room for um, technical you know experimentation and change up and just learning everything and trying everything um, it wasn't sort of like the traditional pipeline animation. You know, a lot of production companies, like large-scale production companies, they have this pipeline that's super regimented and every single process is assigned to an in, a different individual. You know, whether you're a storyboard artist, a colorist, a lineup artist, you know, you can roll into some of those studios and, like, you know, color in for a year. Like, just, you mm-hmm. know, um, paint by numbers, you know. Um, and that was definitely one thing that I didn't want to do. You know, I wanted to make my own films and, you know, allow the, the sort of the modality, the animated modality sort of just be the conduit for story and for voice. Um, so that was definitely a huge drawing card to that course. Mm. I find the timing of that really lucky that, you know, at the moment you decided that you wanted to be an animator and had this direction for the types of stories that you wanted to tell and how you wanted to tell them, this brand new course opened up that was still developing where they are kind of showing you everything. And I suppose there are other benefits to it being a brand new course as well. Maybe not so many students. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I think we were a cohort of 40 that went through. We had sort of like five tutors, you know, like that as a ratio you know, and I stack it up against the last, you know, four to five years that I was there lecturing and tutoring. Mm. Like, I think the cohort's at 120 now, um, and there's kind of like between four and five tutors. So it's spread super thin. The class times have shortened, you know. And I mean, look, these things happen. It's the way it goes. But I was just super lucky, you know. Like, 
now you need a super high ATAR to get in. Mm. Whereas I didn't have that super high ATAR, I definitely didn't have that. But I had a strong portfolio, you know, like I had it just like pages and pages of illustrations and these little animations that I'd done, the 10 work that I'd done. Um, so, you know, being able to get in on that was just lucky, you know, it was just, it was a year later, two years later, I wouldn't have got in. I wouldn't mm. have had that ATAR, you know. And yeah, I feel like that's had such an impact on the way that you tell stories now because you're animating them, but then also writing them and directing them and training other people to write and direct them as mm. well. Mm. And yeah, after this song, I want to dig into that more and actually talk about the stories that you tell through your animation because it has such a clear and amazing direction. First, a song by David Bowie. Tell me about this one. Yeah, so I guess this is a song for Uncle Dave and Uncle Matt. You know, they were absolutely Bowie obsessed. Um, and I think this particular song, you know, um, you know, I've got a bit of family in the video clip, but it's it's not necessarily the reason why I chose it. It was more so what Bowie represented, you know, and, and the humanitarian that he was and the way that he came out here and, you know, just used his his platform and his voice to celebrate blackfellas in this country and ask questions and provoke conversation around the treatment of Aboriginal people in this country, you know. Um, and so, yeah, this is for my uncles, but also for, for Bowie and what he stood for. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is David Bowie. And let's dance. Let's dance. It was David Bowie on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The chooser of that song was Jake Duchinsky. And just before we played it, Jake, we were talking about your time at uni studying animation and where that would eventually take you. I want to talk about your first job out of uni when we were talking about it on the phone yesterday and you started describing the project. I was like, oh, I remember that. And I think a lot of people would too. It was such a profound project and something I'd never seen before. It's called My Grandmother's Lingo. For someone who's never seen it, can you explain it? So My Grandmother's Lingo is the story of a young lady from a community in Nooka by the name of Angelina Joshua. And so the story itself is is her trying to hold on to and retain Mara which is one of the traditional languages up there. You know, a lot of those communities and a lot of the mob up there can speak 15, 16, 17, 20 languages. But this particular language was only spoken by fluently by three elders in the community. And they were very old and they were, you know, sort of getting on a bit. And so she'd sort of made it her mission and what was motivating her was to capture that language and to reteach it in schools and put it back in the curriculum. And so... The way that we approached it was that we developed a, an interactive website where Angelina would guide you through the story. It was broken into little animated chapters. And to progress through the story, you had to physically plug a mic in or speak through your computer mic or your laptop or whatever. And Angelina would speak the word to you. And then you had to speak through the mic to move on. And so the idea was that Mara was now uh, not only preserved in this website, in this story, in this animation, but it could now be broadcast to the world. So yeah, a big part of the, the project of My Grandmother's Lingo was this was the first time that I had a, a really lucky, I don't know how it happened, I don't know who got my details, but I had a really lucky break. And I had a client being SBS, I had a story that resonated with me, you know, I had this story of language loss and, you know, within our family we had this tape of my great-grandfather who was speaking a sort of a mix of Menendangi and Gomoroi sort of dialect and 
so that's this story really resonated with me because that's for a long time all we had mm. until so much of these recent years when language has been rebuilt, you know, and sort of revitalized. We just had this little tape recorded by the ABC way back when. And so I kind of just thought, well, this is the first project out. I've got a huge sort of lucky break here to work on something with a broadcaster with a really beautiful story that I can, you know, sort of empathise with. But also so aligned with that goal you had of wanting to platform First Nations stories. It just fell into your lap that way, straight out of uni. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really beautiful. And to be able to work with the community in Nookar and, you know, be able to illustrate, you know, together and send work up and have them send work down and get on the phone. And it was just a really beautiful process. And I think, you know, that consultative practice was definitely something that I've brought through and continued to evolve and work on. You know, that that moment when we're working with mob who ain't our mob and just how to establish meaningful connection and meaningful consultation and making sure that everybody in the community is aware and there's transparency around the projects and understanding so that everybody is aware and understands the projects and the outcomes of the projects and how we can potentially support or help the the project. So I carried a lot of those, you know, through as I as I sort of freelance my way through the next, you know, six or seven years working on a, an arrangement of different projects. But it was freaky, you know, like after that project was put out there and, you know, like I think we won a we won a Walkley Award. I didn't know what the hell that was, but you know, <laughs> people were like, oh, Walkley. But like, you know what I mean? Like at yeah. the time I was just kind of like, uh, whatever, like the project is what matters and mm. it's back in the communities being taught in schools. And then, you know, like we were going and presenting it to all these larger organisations, you know, these tech organisations, and I was getting emails from random people internationally. You mm. know, there was, I think there was a, Venezuelan woman who emailed me and was like, I'm teaching this in my schools. You know, they're learning Mara. And I was just kind of like, wow, that's really powerful. Mm. You know what I mean? Like to go from three elders in the community and, you know, it it can broadcast it that far. Yeah, that's that's something that I, it was really impactful, you know, for me. You know, the first project that you worked on was so impactful. I've got chills listening to you talk about it. What kind of impact does that have on you making projects thereafter you know when you've reached such a high high from the get-go i guess it was just really um it really clarified that the door would always be open for and what i would try and you know sort of put out there would always be projects that were centered around first nations voices you know that was a huge thing for me and you know growing up and not seeing any animated content that had blackfellas in it. You know, you look to American animation, you know, you look to the boondocks or you look to different animation that was coming out of America to see black faces in animation, you know what I mean? So it was definitely something that I felt was absent in the industry and moving through, you know, within the next six to seven years freelancing, it was very absent in the workforce as well. You know, so often I would be the only Indigenous animator in the room working on a project, you know, and it's quite motivating. You know, it was Mm. like this big alarm bell, but it was also like, all right, you may be the first one pushing through this place. So kick them doors down for the next ones behind you. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think that's that's definitely something that keeps pushing me forward, you know, like just not seeing it represented in the industry, but also just the way in which... Animation can be really beautiful in showing things that can't be filmed. And growing up hearing stories of Bayami and, you know, stepping down from the mirror book, it's like, how do you film that? Mm. You know what I mean? And then so later, rethinking about those stories and writing scripts, you know, like I've got a, like a swag of scripts, you know, for different animations that are all, you know, culturally significant stories, you know, from, from our, our stories and from our country. Um, and the, that's the beauty of it, you know. You can reimagine worlds, you know, and and uh, visualize feelings, you know, that you can't necessarily shoot. You can move through time, 
you know, and you can recreate um, eras or new spaces or places or outer world, you know, take it wherever you want. That's There's something really lovely about that. Totally. And it's, it's so interesting for you to a lot of the time be the first Indigenous animator in those spaces because to me that means that these stories that have been told for thousands of years are now for the first time being told in that format, which is so special. Tell me about the series Cooked. Yeah, so at the time, um, I think the Morrison government had decided to resale the endeavour. They were going to do, you know, this big victory lap around Australia and put gigs on all around, you know, different ports and whatnot. And it was all, you know, it was everywhere. It was all over media and, you know, and whatnot. And I kind of just, you know, I sort of, one night I just wrote a, a script, you know, just like a really basic outline of something that was a different perspective to the one that we were just hearing throughout our media. And it was that Cook comes back as a ghost from the dead. He comes back and sees what's become of the country and sort of starts defying his imperialistic nature. And he starts advocating for blackfellas. <laughs> he starts hanging out with mob and they kind of rear him up and they use him as his tool, as his key to infiltrate these systems and these structures that have been built around us and without us. So that was kind of the broad concept and it was pretty spiky and, you know, there was a few... It was very adult, very adult animation, um, which is not a lot of in this country. So that had that irreverence of, you know, I was watching, I think, Barbecue Area at the time, you know, Jeffrey Atherton's Barbecue Area. And so, you know, I pitched it to the Maritime Museum. I was like, well, look, you know, you guys are resailing this thing and... You know, it's sitting there docked at your shores. Like, do you want another side of it? Do you want another perspective, you know, an Indigenous perspective on, you know, how, you know, Ca- Captain Cook came to be and we perceive Cook? Long story short, they, they gave a very minuscule amount of money um, to produce something, a very small animation. Um, and a place I was freelancing at at the time I just showed him, you know, the studio Hackett, I showed him the script that I was writing. And I think they liked it, you know, there was, there was kind of a lot of laughs in the room and at the time the owner of the company came and said, oh, well, look, do you want to scale this thing up? Do you want to, you know, pitch this thing to the ABC and we'll go to Screen Oz and go get some more funding and make this a full, full-blown production? And so we did, you know, we, we, got, uh, we got funding and, um, you know, we crewed up and part of that, you know, the philosophy of that project, which carried the whole way through, was, well, across the spectrum of this production, I want to have black fellas at every point, you mm. know. Whole black cast, except for Cooked, you know, is played by Ross Noble. I want, you know, um, designers, animators, musicians, producers. Like, if we can create a space, and if we can't create a space, we'll create an internship to train for that space. And so it was just this really beautiful production where we had you know like 12 different paid interns you know all all young um, up-and-coming indigenous animators designers and sound uh, engineers and things like that all working across the, the the spread of the production and so it was just a really lovely way to put a message out there and you know a message that was kind of conflicting with the current you know sort of government's celebration of of Cook and, you know, the the ship itself, but also to kind of create a bit of a framework and a model that we would take onto new new and other projects as well, you know. Yeah, but it was was interesting the way it was received. We released a couple of teasers, a couple of trailers and, and showed some mob at the at the Maritime and at Screen Oz and there were a few moments where some eyebrows, I think, were a little bit singed. It was pretty spiky for them, you know. And right around the corner, Mm. I want to dig into using that structure where you can create opportunities for Indigenous animators and Mm. sound designers and Mm. actors um, and the way that you've been able to do that in a really meaningful way. First, we're going to jump into a song by Bonga Quenda. Why did you pick this one? I think this one is just a good... Like, when I first heard this song, I couldn't understand it, but I could feel it, you know what I mean? And so when I researched, you know, the artist and what the song was about, it's this Angolan fellow who went by this 
Bonga Quenda alias. And, you know, there's a loose translation, which is he who is looking is always ahead and moving. And, you know, it was kind of like this, it was a real sort of um, activist album, you know, Angola 72, it was called. So, yeah, there's there's quite a beautiful uh, style of music and it's called Swadare. It suggests the deep, bittersweet longing for one's homeland. And I thought that'd be quite, you know, powerful to bring on the show because I think a lot of mob out there are, are feeling that, you know what I mean? And I, I hope this song can kind of like, you know, soothe a little bit of that. Chosen by Jake Duchinski on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That was Bonga Quenda. My name is Mia Hull. It's such a pleasure to have your company this afternoon. And just before we played that song, Jake, we were talking about the animated series Cooks You Made and how having funding behind that series meant that you could create so many opportunities for First Nations people working in the industry, which I think points to the conversation we had before where you wanted to platform Aboriginal voices but also create jobs for Aboriginal people and then also tell Aboriginal stories. And you've been able to do all of that through Gillet Studios. Tell me how Gillet came about. It really came about off the back of Cooks, working so closely for about a year and a half with Studio Hackett at the time. We just developed a really organic and, you know, kind of exciting you know, way of working together and a new way of working together, you know, and, um, you know, we kind of just got together and said, oh, well, look, you know, you've got so much knowledge in 20 years of running a production company and I really want to have the ability to be able to scale up on different productions and bring young blackfellas in, you know, and train people up. And so, yeah, we we sort of decided that we would, you know, come together like Voltron and form Studio Gillet. (laughs) And that's sort of where it was born, you know, like um, out of court. And when you say it was born, you just kind of brush over the fact that you started a whole new studio. How does that move from being an idea to actually happening? What kind of work is involved in that? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of boring legals, but, you know, like just sort of sitting down and, um, you know, identifying like the flaws in the industry and in the workplaces that we've been in and, how do we create a space that, you know, sort of pushes away from that, you know? Um, and how do we develop, you know, consultative methods when we're working with, you know, First Nations communities, no matter where they are, you know, that, you know, we can tailor and be flexible and, and, and adapt, you know, and just sort of outline a whole lot of different ways that, you know, like so, for instance, you know, 40% of our staff at the moment are Indigenous um, you know, we, we've teamed up with the Aurora Foundation to push through, you know, a whole lot of paid interns, you know, within the studio. And, uh, you know, it's just that thing, you know, like if we have a space and we can provide a space for people to grow into roles in the industry, that's part of it. You know, that's that's a huge part of it, really. Like, and um, we, we've been lucky enough to work on some really beautiful projects where we've brought creation stories to life, you know, working with the Gunungara community and we got to act as the conduit between the big, mighty Netflix and a little tiny community out in Kununurra, you know, and so we got to fly out there and and work with different artists and, and, you know, TOs and different knowledge keepers and and find ways to, I guess, bring that into an animated space that, you know, first and foremost, the community is happy with, that the community is involved with and workshop ways that the film can return to the community, you know. Is that a story that we get to see soon? Is that out and in the world? Yeah, that's that's out. That um, that film's called Back to the Outback. It's mm-hmm. um, it's out on Netflix. It's a sort of a, a family show. Yeah. Perfect. And are there any other projects you've been working on through Galay that you can tell me about? Yeah. Um, 
We've just released a, a, a doco on SBS and NRTV called Unlocked. It's about two young men coming of age, um, one who was, you know, in the 80s, so speaking retrospectively, one who was locked up in, in Reby in, in juvenile justice uh, centres, um, and another young man who was locked up at um, Callum Park Psychiatric Institution. Um, and so, yeah, and I guess animation was a really good tool for not only veiling identity and allowing them to speak freely. Yeah, it was just a really good way of sort of exploring documentary and, and my first dive into documentary and, and how animation can, can help serve it, you know. And how it can capture feelings as well and the feelings of those places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so amazing. I'm so in awe of the work you do and I feel like I could talk to you about it all day, Jake, but we only have an hour. So I'm probably going to have to wrap it up soon. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. It's been so lovely getting to learn about your life. Yeah, thank thank you for having me. I I really appreciate, you know, having me on and valuing my story. (laughs) You know, it's freaky to think. And if you do want to look further into Jake's story, I'll put some links up on the program's page to some of the things we've spoken about and that photo as well that Jake's dad took of his mum when they first met. So amazing. Um, You wanted to end on the whistle song. I don't know, Frankie Knuckles, can you tell me about this? I mean, I think this was just, you know, you're walking down the street you know, you're walking out of FBI studios and, you know, you got that pep to your step. You know, I just wanted to end it on a on a track that I cruise to work to in the morning, you know, when I'm rolling to the studio. And, um, yeah, Frankie Knuckles brings that, that energy. Um, so, yeah, enjoy. Awesome. Yeah, we'll dive into that one right now on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5, chosen by animator, director, writer and co-owner of Gillet Studios, Jake Duchinsky. Such an honour to have you on the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com. I'll have all those links up as well and the full list of songs that Jake brought to the show. You can also listen back by the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I actually want to give a big shout out to my dad who... (laughs) met Jake a few weeks ago and recommended that he come on the show and I'm so grateful that he teed that up because it's been so nice meeting you Jake um yeah do stay tuned (laughs) lunch is right around the corner FBI 